The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Rotowire Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, James Anderson, and this week I've got the great Sarah Sanchez with me uh, from Bleed Cubby Blue to talk some Cubs, preview the 2024 season. Uh, a lot to talk about with the Chicago Cubs. Uh, thanks for joining me, Sarah. How are you doing? I am great. Much better than I was two weeks ago at this time before Craig Council was announced as the 56th manager of the Chicago Cubs. I'm, I mean, it's it's a nice day in Chicago and it's 60 degrees for some reason, which probably is a harbinger of doom on some other level, but it's lovely to see the sun in November and just happy to be here. Well, very happy to have you. Thanks for taking the time out of your day. And yeah, it's, it's a nice day here in Madison, Wisconsin as well. Uh, so what's your mindset? You mentioned the Craig Council hiring. We we can talk about that in a bit more detail, but just kind of what's your mindset as a Cubs fan as we kind of head into 2024? You know, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, so given the state of the division, I think the Central is a winnable division. And I the Cubs were one win away from making the playoffs in 2023. Now, that said, they've had a lot of turnover and they definitely have some roster holes to fill. But the council move indicates to me that they are going to make some of those moves. I, I highly doubt they get him to move from Milwaukee to Chicago without some assurances that they're in in the short term. And so I am I'm I'm optimistic. We're going to see how the rest of this offseason plays out. But I think Jed's got some moves in. Yeah, I, you'd, you'd think that they are going to be um, pretty aggressive about contending with this team sooner than later. Um, you know, the Craig Council uh, hiring is, is a great move by the, by them. Um, you know, I know a lot of uh, a lot of Brewers fans are, are mad or, or are kind of accusing uh, Craig Council of like a lack of loyalty. Um, I think if you're a Brewers fan and you're mad about the team losing Council, you should be mad at the cheap owner, Mark Adonacio, and not the manager. Um, especially when the owner isn't really showing the state of Wisconsin any loyalty right now with um, negotiations. And uh, if you're a manager, I think you just you want to be where you're most wanted. You want to be um, somewhere where they they really wanted to have you. And uh, I think it's clear the Cubs wanted counsel more than the other 29 teams. So uh, definitely don't fault him at all for for going there. Um, you know, how much. How much do you think there is to kind of just be gained in terms of um, decisions that a manager makes and, and ways that he can kind of impact the team from a wins and loss standpoint um, 
heading into 2024. Do you think there's ground to be gained there? Where, where do you think sort of that um, addition kind of moves the needle the most? You know, it's so tricky. I've looked into this a handful of times, and I know lots of baseball analysts have too, trying to figure out the impact that a manager has on a team's overall win and loss record. There's no such thing as managerial war, right? Like the number of decisions that a manager makes that impact your ability to win or lose a game during a particular game are, are legion. You, did, why is Ian Happ batting third in the lineup? Why is Adbert the closer instead of Julian Merriweather, for example, right? Like there's just so many things going on there. And a lot of them, and I wrote this piece in the middle of last season that it wasn't David Ross's fault that the Cubs were losing one run games, that it was in fact, it went, it came down to moves that the front office had made in terms of like opting for Michael Fulmer and Brad Boxberger as their bullpen arms, instead of maybe going after say an Andrew Chapin or somebody who might've been a little bit better fit for that team. I mean, the Cubs spent most of last year without a functioning lefty reliever in their bullpen, which is still just mind blowing to me. And you can't blame David Ross for that. He pushed the buttons that he was given that said, I think that Craig Council is an elite manager. And I don't know what comes for like I don't know that how much of a difference there is between a good manager and an, a slightly above average manager and I do believe David Ross is a slightly above average manager who probably under regular circumstances does not lose his job. But Craig Council is an elite manager and the stat that blew my mind was that since 2016 Craig Council is 50 games over 500 in one run games. Now, some of that is the bullpen pieces that Craig Council had as the manager of the Milwaukee Brewers. Having Josh Hader back there doesn't hurt. Having Devin Williams back there doesn't hurt. But some of that is managerial decisions. And as I just mentioned, this is a team that missed the playoffs by one game. So I have to believe that there's, I don't know, a two-game upside for having Council as your manager over David Ross. And I think that's what Jed Hoyer saw. And I think that's why they made that move. I also just have to say, as the foremost skeptic about Jed Hoyer and his ability to manage the Chicago Cubs, this is the boldest thing that Jed Hoyer has ever done. It is the Cubs acting like a big market team again. And I am here for that because I, I think that it's a tragedy whenever the NL Central is winnable, that the Cubs don't throw their weight around a little bit. You are the largest baseball team in Chicago, you have hundreds of millions of dollars and fans that pack your stadium, no matter what, you should act like a big market team. And they did that here. Yeah, it, you know, absolutely. Uh, definitely echo those sentiments. Um, you know, you mentioned to me when we were kind of uh, preparing for this episode that uh, we, we should touch on Shohei Otani because <laughs> the markets have moved and I believe you you were saying you saw that the Cubs are have the second best odds to sign him uh, after the Dodgers on on some sports books. Um, you know, it's uh, obviously any team would love to have Shohei Otani. Uh, you know how excited? Obviously, you're you'd be very excited if they make it happen. But um, do you think there's there's more to this? Um, do you think that that would be a realistic? landing spot for for Otani? So I'm on the record as of about two weeks ago, like saying there was no shot just because the largest deal in the history of the Chicago Cubs franchise is Jason Hayward. And the second largest deal is Dansby Swanson. And those deals are all like six, seven years and start with a one. Um, and Shohei's deal is not going to start with a one. <laughs> There's just no way. But two things lead me to believe 
that this might have legs. Like Vegas odds don't move this much with nothing. I and the movement I saw, and admittedly, I don't know that every sports book has it this way. The Cubs went from two thousand to one odds to sign Shohei Otani, all the way to three fifty to one odds, right behind the Dodgers after they hired Craig Council. That's bonkers. Like th- that's a huge amount of movement in a week. There's also some rumors flying. The Cubs were in on Shohei last time. They were one of the final teams. They were the only non-West Coast team in the finals there. I've seen some guys who uh, cover West Coast baseball comment on how you Darvish has really talked up his time in Chicago to Shohei Otani. And Otani, by all accounts, seems interested in winning and winning in the short term. And then the last thing that I saw today, just before we came online here, that also makes sense Shohei might be interested in signing a short-term deal to reestablish himself as a pitcher before hitting the open market. And Jed Hoyer is the king of short-term deals. I mean, look at what he did with Marcus Stroman and the three years with the opt-out. Obviously, Stroman exercised that opt-out, so he will not pitch his third season with the Chicago Cubs. The Cody Bellinger, $17 million, will give you one year, reestablish yourself, hit the market. If Shohei wants to hit free agency as a true two-way player and not as a guy who's recovering from Tommy John and may never pitch again, he could do a lot worse than spending a year with the Chicago Cubs and being a designated hitter at the friendly confines at Wrigley Field. And I think Jed Hoyer would make that deal in a second. The last thing I'll say here is that with those big contracts that the Cubs have signed in the past that I am always cranky about because I feel like they're not big market team deals, there is a rationale if you're the Ricketts family to be the team that establishes yourself as the landing spot for Japanese baseball in the United States. They already have Seiya Suzuki. You add Shohei Otani to that mix and maybe pick up one of Yamamoto or Imanaga, the Cubs instantly become Japanese baseball central. And that is a huge boost for the brand. I I can't even imagine what that's worth in marketing and ad revenue, but it's got to be worth whatever it would cost to sign those guys. Yeah, that's a compelling pitch. Um, I... You know, I wouldn't put it past them. Um, wouldn't put it past Shohei for maybe doing a, a get-right contract like you outlined. Um, that'd be bad news for anyone who's been drafting Christopher Morell right now. Uh, but uh, I want to kind of go position by position with you. We'll, we'll talk about Morell here in a second. Um, just kind of get a get a sense of where we're at with the depth chart with uh, projected roles for 2024. Um, and I think center field's an interesting place to start. You know, you saw Mike Talkman uh, playing a lot there down the stretch last year. We saw Pete Crow Armstrong get the call. Uh, Crow Armstrong's defense is just a, a joy to watch out there. Um, but I didn't really seem like the bat was quite ready uh, to me. Um, where where are you at kind of on, on center field? Do you think that they kind of – you know, go with Talkman until they think PCA is ready? Do you think Crow Armstrong could win that job in camp? Um, how does Christopher Morrell fit in? Uh, what, what do you think about center field? Well, I don't think Christopher Morrell fits in at center field at all. We're going to talk about Morrell in a second. And he's he's got some issues in his game as much as I love him. And one of them is his range uh, at some of the primo defensive positions. And center field, I think, is not a place where we're going to see a lot of Christopher Morrell. I think he nailed it with your assessment of Pete Crow Armstrong and Mike Tackman, who I, I love, by the way. Like we were calling it the summer of Mike Tackman over here. <laughs> he really, from about June to August, just kind of lit things on fire in Chicago. And I was kind of stunned. I, I don't think this registered with me when they signed him to a minor league deal, but I had to do a double take because it looks like Tackman's under team control until 2027. 
I imagine they're just going to keep him around as a backup outfielder as long as they possibly have that roster spot available. And that's great news for the Cubs because he's cost effective. He's a great player. He's a hometown kid. And I think he really established himself as a guy who can play all of the outfield positions, but especially center field where they really needed somebody for a while now. With Pete Crow Armstrong, I don't think we've seen enough to know who he truly is. I mean, he had 19 plate appearances in the big leagues last year. But it's worth noting a couple of things. The first is he didn't get any hits in those 19 plate appearances. And and he seemed to really struggle with catching up with fastballs, which that that's a problem for me in terms of looking at him as your opening day center fielder. I kind of think that unless he has an incredibly strong spring training, they're going to start him in AAA, let Talkman start the year in center field and, and then bring PCA up when the bat catches up a little bit to the glove. But he walked, he took a lot of walks, which I thought was really interesting. He had 39 stolen bases across three different levels last year. And if he can get on base, he can steal some bags. So I think Pete Crow Armstrong is the center fielder of the future. That might be something that keeps them from signing Cody Bellinger, honestly, because I don't think Cody Bellinger wants to be a first baseman for the rest of his career. I think he does want to play some center field and that position looks locked up for the Cubs, at least as of 2025. I just don't know if it's PCA's job on opening day or if it's his job sometime in May. Yeah, PCA had a 73% contact rate at AA, a 66% contact rate at AAA, and then a 56% contact rate in that tiny sample in the majors. Um, so that's that's just the one area of his game where I I you know I hope it kind of comes along and it, um, you know probably will. He's he's still you know, just coming off his age 21 season. Um, but that, yeah, like Talkman does seem like, uh, you know, a steady option, a cost controlled option to kind of keep that spot warm if, if PCA is not quite ready. Um, but I mean, his, his defense in center field, like I was, I was going back and looking at some of his better plays um, from this past season. And it's just uh, one of the better defensive center fielders you'll see. Oh, yeah, it's, it's incredible. I mean, the catches PCA is making, I have told my friends uh, who follow the Cubs, I haven't seen catches like that from a center fielder in Chicago since the days of, like, we're talking Reed Johnson and maybe Sam Fold. I mean, th- that's the last time the Cubs had a center fielder who could make those plays. Yeah, I mean, he <clears throat> he's so good at uh, getting jumps and, and reading the ball that he's not really, they're not always highlight plays, but, like, it's just because he gets there. Um so well and, and so efficiently uh, with his routes. Um, but what, what about Morrell? Um, you know, are we, are we in danger of him being a, a UT only fantasy option in 2025? Like, where is he going to find playing time? Are you, are you buying the idea of trying him at first base? The idea of Christopher Morrell at first base kind of gives me a heart attack. I think the Cubs tried a bunch of guys at first base last year and realized how incredibly important first base defense is. Uh, the Eric Cosmer days were not great. The Trey Mancini days, I don't even want to think about it. I watched Patrick Wisdom just make some boneheaded plays at first base that frankly, I they hurt my soul to, to think about and reconsider. I think that the better play for Morrell, and I'm honestly not sure why they don't do it. They must have seen something at some point in time, but most of his minor league time was spent at third base and he has the arm for third base. And I can't figure out why he gets no run at third base with the Cubs other than that's where Madrigal and Wisdom were kind of comfortable. But Christopher Morrell has a 99th percentile arm strength. 
And he is, ex he's exceptionally toolsy, right? Like the barrel rate is exceptional. The hard hit rate is out of control. The ball jumps off his bat. These are not cheap home runs. It's, he is a toolsy guy, but he has almost no range and his instincts for where to go defensively are just not very good. And the arm reminds me of this kind of a throwback, but this is a Sean Dunstan arm. This is an arm that can throw the ball so hard and it might land on Addison. And so it's one of these situations where if they want to get him a defensive position, the best spots would be corner outfield, which are blocked at the moment, or third base. And I'm just not sure they're going to give him the looks he needs at third base. He's honestly looked best in the field at second base. That position is Nico Horner's, and Nico has a gold glove there. So uh, I think it's third base or best for Christopher Morrell. And as much as I hate to say this because he is my favorite Cub at this moment in time, I kind of think he becomes part of a trade package for somebody else because they they don't have a great spot for him unless he's the designated hitter. And I actually think it's hurting him as a hitter to be the DH. I think he's better when he's playing in the field as a hitter. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting about his arm. Um, <clears throat> you know, I was kind of looking at their kind of long-term infield depth chart and, you know, Nico Horner, Dansby Swanson, obviously rock solid uh, at shortstop and second base. Matt Shaw, their first round pick last year, um, second base is kind of his best spot too. And he's probably going to look ready by the middle of the summer. Um, but I don't think Horner or Shaw have the arm for third. And, you know, I don't know. Do you think it's realistic to like fit Shaw in at second base and move Horner back to shortstop and move Dansby to third. Like, I guess I don't really know where you see or where other Cubs fans see Matt Shaw fitting in. Cause I do really like Matt Shaw as a prospect. I do think he will be ready sooner than later. Um, but that arm that you mentioned with Morrell, like that could be a distinguishing trait when they're trying to figure out who plays shortstop and who plays third base. I don't know if you have any thoughts about uh, just how those pieces kind of fit on the infield. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I honestly wish they had played Morrell more at third base during the 2023 yeah. season so that we had an answer to this question because right. I never saw him make a play that I was like, oh, that was terrible. You can't have him at third. Uh, and frankly, I saw a lot of Nick Madrigal at third base where we call him Nicky Five Steps over here right now because he has to take like a running start to throw the ball across the diamond. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. He was pretty good from a like didn't make errors at third base perspective and also he can jump as high as he can possibly jump. And that ball is making it to left field. He's running across the diamond to get a running start to throw it to first. It is really difficult to watch. He is not a third baseman. I think Christopher Morrell could be a third baseman. Uh, Matt Shaw is super interesting to me. Matt Shaw, in my opinion, could be ready by the middle of next season. But again, second baseman, not third baseman. What I would like to do, because I don't know if you remember this. I remember looking at Dansby's arm strength. Uh, when the Cubs signed him. And it was actually weaker as far as shortstops go too. I haven't looked at that in the last year. So if that data has improved over the last season, uh, you can, you can hold me accountable on it. But I, Nico Horner strikes me as having the arm for third. And if you put Morrell at second and Dansby at short, I think that you could make that work. I just think the Cubs are going to be reticent to give up their up the middle defensive weapon because of what we're going to talk about with pitching in a second, which is the rotation is stacked with contact guys. Justin Steele, Kyle Hendricks, Jamison Tyon, they all need elite defense behind them to be exceptional pitchers. And so the Cubs need a strong defensive third baseman. 
I don't know how long they're going to let Morel try to do that. It, it, his stat cast page, it, when you look at it, it's like 99th percentile arm strength, negative seven range. It's just like, <laughs> what do you do with that? Well, that's that's great to hear that you think Horner might have the arm for third. Um, that at least gives them like a, another option. Uh, you know, just, just really interesting kind of, I agree. I think Morel makes sense in a trade. I think just, you know, it does seem like second base, maybe the best spot for him, maybe just a, a rebuilding team, a team that's not that worried about how many wins they have in 2024 could give him more opportunities at other positions. Um, but yeah, just, it does seem like, you know, Horner at second base is a really good fit for for the pitching staff. Like you said, Shaw, you know, unless his arm is better than his scouting report says, he doesn't really have the arm for third. So Horner, maybe, you know, maybe you get that, that really impactful offensive production from Shaw at second base and you get the defense from Horner at third base and maybe you kind of move those guys around a little bit, but um, yeah, interesting to kind of see how this depth chart clears up uh, in the coming months. Um, are the, the Madrigal, you, you kind of touched on him uh, with the uh, great description of his, his running throws at third base um, wisdom master Boney. Like are those guys just clear, clear bench bats. Uh, for I don't know team. why my, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you're good. I don't know why miles Bastroboni is still on the <laughs> roster. I, I, I mean, I probably, cause they can't get anybody to trade them something useful for him. He's, he's a nice backup piece, I suppose, but he's, I'd rather have magical in that backup spot. I'd rather have morale in that backup spot. I'd rather have wisdom in that backup spot. Um, I think that all of those guys are bench guys right now, barring injury. I think that they would trade Madrigal or Wisdom for any piece of value if they could. Uh, and I, I don't blame them for that. The last, I do want to say one last thing about Christopher Morrell before we move on, and that is he's only 24. Mm -hmm. The strikeout rate is 31%, but the barrel rate is 15.9%. And I just, the power is so legit that I want to know what happens if Christopher Morrell can ever get his K rate down to say 25 to 27%, because I just think that's a special bat. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, uh, you know, one of my favorite moments of the season, I mean, this will probably peel back the curtain of just sort of how how much uh, I'm kind of emotionally not invested in in the Brewers at this point in my fandom, but like that that walk-off Christopher Morrell, uh, was it a grand slam where he ripped his shirt off? 
Um, it was it was three run homer against the White Sox. It was a three run homer. It that was one of the coolest moments of the season last year. Um, I'm sure you remember that fondly. Oppo to right center, and he had no business hitting that ball out of the ballpark. No. That was some Javi Baez light tower power. The difference between Javi and Morel is that Morel walks. So Morel has an 8.4% walk rate, and he doesn't have the defensive prowess that Javi Baez does. He's not a magician in the field. And so it's like it's like Javi light on everything, <laughs> on the defense and on the power and on the magic. Yeah, that was a fun moment. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to trade for Christopher Morel, um, really, if I was any team, but uh, certainly a, a rebuilding team. Um, so, you know, you mentioned the corner outfield spots are kind of spoken for. Uh, Ian Happ um, just kind of seems like he's in the middle of his prime. Uh, Seiya Suzuki, though, uh, obviously had a, I think he had a big month of May, had a huge second half um, with some down months uh, mixed in there. Um, I'm I'm guessing you think the second half version of Seiya Suzuki is is closer to the real Seiya Suzuki. I mean, I do, but some of that might be wish casting. This is my favorite team, <laughs> after all. I want to talk about um, both of these guys for one second, and I want to complicate this a little bit okay. because there are also rumors that the Cubs are intrigued by this Juan Soto being available for trade option. And if that's true, that's great. Juan Soto is a generational talent. I would love to see him on the Cubs for a year, but he can't play center. So if you are going to trade for Juan Soto, you have to clear a corner outfield spot, either by moving Saya to DH or by trading Ian Happ. And I I wonder what the Cubs could get for the contract that they have with Ian Happ. I, I mean, I, I like Ian Happ too. I agree that he's in his prime, but he is less good at everything Juan Soto does. Um, he's a gold glove outfielder. He's probably a better defender, but beyond that, he gets on base less. He hits for less power. I mean, if you're looking to upgrade the bat there, that's the place that you could do it. In my opinion, it's a favorable contract that somebody might be interested in if you're trying to move some pieces around. So I want to throw that in there to complicate this narrative a bit, because if the Cubs do wind up being in on Juan Soto, then I think that Hap becomes the guy that maybe they try to move for something else, whether that is pitching or whether that's part of the Soto deal or whether that's something something else. Um, say, uh, oh, go ahead. You can move Hap and Morel, maybe. Um, yeah. So you tra- trade for Juan Soto, sign Otani and Yamamoto, and you're you're after the races. Or you trade for Juan Soto, you keep Christopher Morel because you have to move Hap. But then when Soto becomes a free agent, Morel gets left field, right? Like there's just a bunch okay. of ways to piece yeah. this together that are kind of interesting to me. And I think Jed's open to all the chess moves. Like there's a reason they're being named with pretty much every premier free agent. And it's not just because they have some holes to fill. It's because they they will make those moves and they've got the pieces in place and the financial flexibility to do some of that. So, sorry for cutting you off. Uh, you were going to say something about Say Suzuki. Oh, no, I... So I think what Saya did in the second half last season was his adjustment to the adjustment. So if you remember when he came up in April of 2022, he was like player of the month. Everybody was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. And then he kind of took a huge step back. There were some injuries. There was also he, he was really passive at the plate. And you saw that last year after that hot May as well. He he was watching a lot of strikes. He didn't seem to have an approach at the plate where he knew what he wanted to do when he went up to bat. And if you watched him in July and August, it was really after he got benched for about a week in July that he just turned it on. He looked incredible. And it was almost like a mental switch flipped 
And I am hoping that the adjustment to the adjustment is the real Seiya Suzuki, because if it is, that's a special bat. He is he was one of the offensive highlights for a Cubs team that faded down the stretch, but not because of anything Seiya Suzuki did. Yeah, he was awesome to have in, in fantasy in the second half. Um, you know, I think like he's a value right now where he's going going in drafts. Um, I think I've got him on at least one team so far already. Uh do you want to touch is was there anything you wanted to say about just Horner and Swanson just from like fantasy expectations? Do you think they're just kind of going to reprise exactly what they did last year more or less? I would say one more thing about Say Suzuki then I swear I'll go to Nico and yeah, to yeah, and yeah. to Dansby. Uh, and that is that even with the struggles last last year and in 2022, the WRC plus he posted in 2022 was 116. The WRC plus he posted in 2023 was 122. Imagine what Saya does without two months of struggles in either of those months. You're looking at a 20 plus home run guy. I don't think he's going to run as much anymore, but I think he would take the power in the bat and he's going to hit in the middle of the lineup. And that's good enough for me. Yeah, he's just, a, I mean, he's just a, when he's going well, he looks like just one of those middle of the order, high OBP um, impact bats. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just, can we get a full season of that? Then he's just a, a huge steal where he's going right now. Um, I'm so into it. Um, okay. Nico and Dansby, a uh, couple of things. Number one, uh, I think that Nico Horner is everything that I want out of a second baseman. And I think he's going so high right now that I just don't know how much Nico Horner I'm going to have. And I understand it came real close to stealing 50 bags last year. And those steals are nice. He hits like 280 plays every day leads off so you get a bunch of runs out of him he's going at pick 72 right now and I honestly think I like Dansby Swanson better who is going at pick 133 and gives you a lot of the same stuff Dansby was dealing with a heel contusion for the better part of last year that I think really slowed him down a bit literally in the in terms of steals but also his bat just didn't look the same in the second half as it did in the first half so I'm into a Dansby rebound both of those dudes are going to play every day. Both of them are going to hit low in the order. And I can't understand why Dansby is going 60 picks after Nico right now, other than the steals. Yeah, it's it's uh, definitely the steals. Um, do you think Horner, like, what do you think is kind of a realistic range for him with batting average? Um, where do you think, do you think Dansby and, and Horner um, are at there relative to each other? So... Dansby's weird because he kind of goes from like he'll hit 278 one season, then he'll hit 248, then he'll hit 277, <laughs> 250. Yep. So last year was his 250 season. So there's a non-zero chance that Dansby's like a 277 bat next year. The thing with Nico, however, I think Nico has a 300 season in him. And mm. the contact is so good. He's kind of like a Mark Grace hitter. Like he he hits a lot of doubles and he hits a lot for contact. And there's a few home runs in that bat. So you're probably not getting more than nine or 10 home runs out of Nico. Most of his home runs are line shots that barely clear the wall, but you're getting so many more steals because he will run a ton and you have the upside upside of a 300 season. He's almost like Luisa Reyes in that sense. Um, that's kind of who he reminds me of there. But I think that for me next year, if I'm looking at, I can get Dansby, multiple rounds after I can get Nico. I think I'm more in on Dansby than I am in Nico as much as I love Porter. 
Yeah, that's a it's a really good thing, or a really good thing to bring up with uh, Swanson, just the fact that he was playing with that heel issue because he attempted 25 steals in 2022, and then he attempts just 10 steals last year when everyone's running more than they were in 2022. So do you think there's a chance that, you know, he's not going to come close to Horner from a stolen base standpoint, but can he get back up into kind of that, that 15 steal range maybe? I think he can. And I actually, one of the things I'm most curious about and that I looked at before jumping on with you here is how Craig council is going to approach stolen bases. And if that will be different than what David Ross Mm. and company did. So I looked at this in the middle of the season last year and it really looked like the Cubs had a pop time go number it was like if you had a catcher with a pop time that was north of 1.95 then they were willing to run on you and if it was like south then they were not um mike napoli has really been in charge of the running game for the cubs for better or for worse and in 2022 the cubs like got caught stealing all over the place in 2023 they were pretty good um i have a hunch that council's running philosophy might be fairly similar to David Ross's. They, they look similar, right? Like the Brewers stole 129 bags last year. The Cubs stole 140. Most of that excess is Nico going wild on the base pass. And um, they're very similar in terms of how they're grouped. Like the Brewers were a lot of Bryce Terang and a lot of Christian Yelich and then a handful of guys in like the 10 to 11 range. The Cubs were, Nico's 40 whatever stolen bases and then Cody Bellinger with 20 and then a bunch of guys in the 9 10 11 type of range and so I think it's possible that a healthy Dansby Swanson runs more frequently than he did in 2023 and then you probably get back to I don't know 15 steals 20 plus home runs and if it's a year where he hits 270 280 that's a pretty nice player at 133. Yeah I agree with you um Where's uh, Suzuki going? So Seiya's going 117. Um, also before Dansby. That's wild to me. Like, what did Dansby do to break your hearts, people? Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe maybe Dansby's a smash where he's going right now. Um, I think people just are reacting probably too much. And, you know, first year with a new team, too. You often see guys with like, a bit of a down year. Um there so yeah i i like that call on dansby uh in the 130s uh what do you think about first base dh you know i i was as high as anyone on matt mervis this time last year uh but he's really kind of checking a lot of quad a boxes for me at this point um really like hayden mcgeary long term he just hits the ball insanely hard but probably more of a 2025 name I know they've been uh, there've been Reese Hoskins rumors. Uh, what do you think? What do you think about that spot? So the the Mervis situation is a bit maddening to me, uh, mainly because his max exit velocity in his time with the Cubs, I think he got like forty nine plate appearances, so just about enough to stabilize that barrel rate. Max exit velocity is one eleven point eight. His barrel rate's thirteen point eight percent, which you wouldn't think looking at his home run numbers. Like he was super unlucky with his barrels and the hard hit rate was 50%. So part of me thinks that Mervis is a trade piece. (laughs) He should get traded somewhere where someone's going to give him some run at first base, because I think that he's probably a little bit, he should get luckier than he did with the Cubs in the small Mm -hmm. sample that he got with them. But I don't think he's the first baseman of the future for the Chicago Cubs. If he plays, he's going to play somewhere else. I think they are in on Reese Hoskins for the same reason that they might be in on Shohei Otani. You've got an injured guy who might want to reestablish himself and might be interested in taking 
hire AAB for a shorter term to do that with an opt-out and yada, yada. That's a really good fit for the Chicago Cubs. If they don't get Reese, Hop Reese Hoskins, I think that the guy that they might look to uh, is the guy they traded for last year. And it's Jamer Candelario, who, as far as I can tell, is an above average bat that can play third base and first base pretty serviceably, whose offensive numbers are really hurt by the fact that he played so long in Detroit. Uh, and I truly believe that Jamer Candelario playing a full year with the Chicago Cubs would look a lot more like the Jamer you got in Washington than the Jamer that you got in Detroit. Um, and so I imagine that they're probably, they'll be in on Reese Hoskins and they might not get him. And if they don't get him, Candelario is your team. I really like Candelario. Um, I love Candelario. <laughs> that was so much fun having him, uh, especially when he was, you know, with the Nationals in that park. But um, yeah, he's going at 288 right now. Uh, love Candelario is kind of a, a really cheap corner infield option in drafts right now. Um, the idea of giving Hoskins like a one-year deal, that makes sense too. Um, so yeah, it sounds like we're kind of on the same page. Like if you're drafting Matt Mervis, I mean, you're probably hoping for trade slash injuries, but you know, which what team is going to trade for a 25 year old first base prospect? You know, it's just yeah. it's a it's a tough sell. <laughs> no, it's it's definitely uh, like one of the pieces that goes in addition to like some headliner. As far as Candelario goes, though, he had 39 doubles last year. He had 42 two years ago in Detroit. I, that guy's a doubles machine. And that doesn't tend to catch our eyes as much as home runs do, but there's a lot of RBIs and a lot of and a lot of batting average in doubles. And I just I don't know. I like Candy a lot. Yeah, I mean, I I really do too. Um, he it just sort of seemed like he was maybe pressing um, in that 2022 year, heading into free agency, and obviously the like you know as you said the uh, the park did him no favors um, in Detroit. But yeah, I mean, he's just a, he's a good hitter. Um, you know, I think I would take, you know, he, he's right now, Steamer's got him for 19 homers, 248 average. Um, he stole eight bases last year, which was exciting um, to get that production from a, a corner infielder. So, um, yeah, I like Candelario. Uh, what do you think about uh, Owen Casey? And do you think he's promising enough that, they should be kind of planning for him in right field long-term. There's a couple of things about Owen Casey that I love. And one thing that is a big red flag to me mm -hmm. um, for starters, I would like to just like flag this with Owen Casey looks like the only prospect from the U Darvish Victor Caratini deal that will ever sniff the major leagues, which is a really good reminder of how far away prospects can be when they get traded. So there were a lot of guys that were the headliners there like Preciado and these other, and these other names that they just don't look like they're ever going to pan out at all. Um, what he did in double A last year was super impressive. He slashed 289, 398, 519. The power looks real. He put up a 409 Woba and a 144 WRC plus love that from Casey and think he could absolutely play right field for the Cubs someday. And also he was striking out 31.1% of the time in double A. And I just don't, that's the amount Christopher Morrell strikes out in the major leagues. And I don't know how you move Owen Casey all the way from double A to the majors next year without that strikeout rate coming close to 35, 40%. And that just strikes me as a potential disaster on a team that's trying to contend. So I think he's probably maybe a late September call up, possibly a dude that you see in August if everything is going right, but he would have to do something 
pretty significant with that strikeout rate to see a ton of playing time or the Cubs have gotten had an injury issue. Somebody has collapsed. I don't know to see Owen Casey next year. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. Uh, not really a 2024 name, more of a 2025, uh, maybe late 2024, but um, let's, uh, let's talk about catcher quickly before we get to the, the pitchers. Um, I've uh, I think Miguel Amaya is probably my most rostered cub at this point through four uh, NFBC drafts. Um, been kind of drafting him as like a, a premium third catcher when I don't get uh, two really solid catchers. If I'm kind of weaker at, at my number two catcher, I'm going for Miguel Amaya uh, at his ADP, um, like the power potential. Uh, I thought he did pretty well, was a bit, un- bit unlucky last year as a rookie, but how do you see the playing time shaking out between Amaya and Jan Gomes in the short term? Uh, just, just at 2024, obviously Amaya probably more of the, the long-term option there. Absolutely. So one non-playing time note on Amaya, uh, if you play in an OBP league, that dude has a knack for getting hit with pitches. <laughs> he's a, he's <laughs> an excellent OBP option. Um, just something to keep in mind. Uh, I love Miguel Amaya, and I think he's the Cubs catcher of the future. He's one of my favorite players on the team right now. And also, I think that is Jan Gomes' job until Jan Gomes collapses. If you watch a Cubs broadcast at least three times a week, they talk about his qualitative abilities, his uh, game planning, how he works with the pitchers. It's, it almost sounds like like St. Jan time on Marquee Sports Network, and it's interesting to me because the amount of praise that gets heaped on him by the coaching staff, by the pitchers is truly unique. I've never heard them do that with a catcher in most of the time that I've watched the Cubs since Marquee came into existence. So that's worth flagging. So I think Jan Gomes gets the bulk of the playing time for mainly to help the pitching staff more than anything else. Most of Amaya starts to date have been, have not involved game calling. He catches Kyle Hendricks who calls his own game. And so I think Amaya is still very much the apprentice learning a lot from Jan Gomes. I am curious, however, if that changes now that David Ross is not the manager of the Cubs. Because one thing that I think distinguishes Craig Council from David Ross is that he's more willing to play prospects and let them learn on the field than David Ross is. And and that's going to be a difference uh, for the 40-man roster. It's actually something I'm curious about with Christopher Morrell. Too. Like, I, I wonder how much of morale never getting slotted into third base was David Ross versus the front office. Um, and I just, I think that council could develop some of these young guys differently. And if that's the case, and Amaya winds up with like a 50 50 split as opposed to a 70 30 split, which is what he kind of had at the end of last season, I'm super interested in Miguel Amaya. The bat looks legit. He's got some power potential. And he is the guy who needs to be able to do that job when Jan Gomes retires. I think Jan Gomes is like 35, 36 next season. So the day is coming for Jan Gomes, even though he's been excellent for the Cubs so far. Okay. So I should, I should pump the brakes on the idea that uh, Amaya could uh, kind of take over the reins mid season there. Um, probably need a Gomes injury for that pick to really pan out in 2024 is kind of, kind of what it sounds like. That's my gut instinct. I've been, I, I would probably pick up Gomes ahead of my, of Amaya right now, but if you're in a dynasty or keeper situation, it's Amaya 100%. Any other hitters you want to touch on before we get to the, the pitching staff? 
I mean, you mentioned in the notes here, and I just want to flag uh, Alexander Canario because he he's out of options, and I it's an interesting scenario that they find themselves in. He can play a little bit of center, and he's another guy that got called up at the end of the season, really showed some power, but spent most of his time on the bench because David Ross wasn't playing him at all. And I'm curious if he gets more looks uh, with a Craig Cancel at the helm, and uh, he's got some he's got some pop. I he actually reminds me a little bit of Nelson Velasquez who. The Cubs also put in their lineup sporadically, sat on the bench too much. And then when he went to Kansas City, he popped 17 home runs at Kauffman Stadium. And I was like, you're telling me the Cubs couldn't have used a little bit of that power? They absolutely could. So Canario's got got some power in that bat. And I'm curious to see what he could do. Yeah, that's a really good comp. Just two kind of righty sluggers who uh, maybe don't quite fit in uh, for the Cubs, given their their options but yeah like you said out of options canario and uh ut only for fantasy um heading into the year uh okay let's get to the rotation uh you know justin Steele, you you were on the show with me last year i wasn't buying it with justin Steele. i thought hayden west nesky was better than justin Steele a year ago and you uh kind of were were talking up steal to me and and you were dead right i was dead wrong um you know how is his fastball so effective how much regression are you expecting from justin Steele? um you know do you think that that just is what he is what he did last season i actually think he's better than what he did last season so i i know i well because at the end of the last at the end of last season he collapsed a little bit and took himself out of the cy young race i think i think justin Steele is who he was through August, I think what happened to Justin Steele is he ran out of gas. Um, he had never thrown that many innings at any level of baseball before. And what we saw at the end of the season kind of took him from a 2.2 ERA to a 3.03 ERA and knocked him out of Cy Young contention. What I think happens with Justin Steele, and it's really hard to measure. And so it gets missed by things like stuff metrics, and it gets missed by things like when you're just looking at a baseball savant page. His fastball and slider wind up working like multiple pitches because of the way he locates them to different hitters. And so he gets a lot of deception on that, which means that batters make really weak contact against Justin Steele consistently. And because he has the defense that he has behind him in terms of Dansby and Nico, those turn into outs really fast. Uh, The other thing about Steele that I think is super interesting, Justin Steele is so gritty. Like if you watch him in a game where he's got runners at second and third, no outs in the sixth, he gets out of that jam nine times out of 10. And I, I don't know what it is that distinguishes some guys where they're able to do that and other guys are not. But whatever that it factor is, Justin Steele has it. He actually reminds me of a, a lot of John Lester and a lot of the things that Steele, start, when Steele started getting effective, it was after some conversations he had had with Lester about how to sequence his pitches and how to use them more. And so I truly believe Justin Steele has at least one season in him where he is going to be that 2.23-ish ERA guy the whole way through. And I'm I'm fascinated to see what he does next year when he's not going to hit an innings limit. Well, yeah, I mean, he got up to 173 last year. Uh, That's that's a lot in today's game. but yeah, I mean, if you <laughs> if you think uh, do you think he's the guy he was before he kind of crumbled down the stretch? Uh, he's a really good pick at you know, he's going he's going as high as forty two and as low as one twenty nine. So uh, 
Um, pretty wide range on Justin Steele right now, but that's well, interesting. I'm doing this from memory, but I think that his max innings prior to last season was 119. So he threw like 50, 60 extra innings last season um, over what he had ever thrown at any level of the majors or, or the minors. And so that's sort of why I think he could be that guy. Now he could all, the regression monster could also come for him and we could be talking about this next year. And be, I, I could, I could be the one who's dead wrong and you would be the one who's absolutely right. But I will say steamers regression for him would still be excellent. It has him projected for a 3.69 ERA and a 3.81 FIP. And I think he'll overperform both of those. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the durability factor was actually part of the reason I was low on him, um, just because I remembered him always being kind of banged up as a prospect. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if he if he can build or just kind of get comfortable with that new workload, um, yeah, I mean, that could be great. I mean, uh, ground ball rate, pretty much 50% uh, at every stop recently, so... Yeah, getting getting the ball to Dansby and and Nico, um, not a bad plan. Uh, what about? Uh, so I I don't have any Justin Steele yet. Um, just kind of assuming there's regression coming there, but I think you make some compelling points about why maybe it won't be coming. Uh, but I do I do have some Jamison Tyone shares already. Uh, I think he finished sneakily very strong, unless you were a Cubs fan or unless you. We're using him in fantasy down the stretch. Um, do you think Tyon might be a possible sleeper this year? I absolutely do think Tyon's a sleeper this year. And I, I, Tyon's a guy, a guy that I picked up and then dropped and then picked up and then dropped and picked up and dropped like at least three or four times last season. It was such a roller coaster with him. I was talking with Eno about this at the Fall Stars game at first pitch Arizona. And his read on this was similar to what I had sort of thought while I was watching Tyone, which is that he tinkered with his pitch mix when he came to Chicago. They introduced a sweeper into it. And that sweeper got hammered by lefties, which then led teams to stack lefties against Tyon in a way that they had not done in previous iterations, which forced him to then change his pitch mix again. And so that's kind of what you saw with the up and down with Tyon last year, he really looked like he kind of figured it out by the last six starts of the season. And if that's true, then he's a steal at an ADP of 312 because the Jamison Tyon that we saw before he came to the Cubs and the guy we saw at the very end of the 2023 season should absolutely be going before the 20, 20th, 21st round. Yeah, yeah I mean, you're 100% right. Um, <clears throat> so over Tyon's final... 16 starts of the year he's got a 338 era a 110 whip and 81 k's and 90 and two-thirds innings and that includes a start where he gave up eight runs in three innings in toronto so i mean you're talking about just really really solid like sp3 production from him over the second half of the season yeah and he strikes out about as many guys as justin Steele does but you're getting him so much later in the draft. I just, I love where Tyon is going here. I don't have him anywhere yet. I've only done uh, part of the one draft and hold that we did in first pitch Arizona, although I'm going to jump into some of these gladiators over the Thanksgiving break for sure. I I really like Tyon as an option next year. Yeah, Tyon's a great gladiator guy too, because, um, you know, just, you know, he's got the job, you, you know, decent bet to get the innings. So, um, yeah. 
you know, you mentioned Kyle Hendricks calls his own games. Um, do you think he's a guy that people can stream in certain matchups? Uh, what did he look like last year? I love Kyle Hendricks as a streaming option, and I actually don't hate him as like a dude who you've got on your bench to see what happens. So Kyle Hendricks is even cheaper than Jamison Tyon. You can get him at pit 476 right now. He's got a th- last season, he had a 3.76 ERA and a 1.20 whip. That is above league average, no matter how you cut it. Like the league average for ERA was 4.45, the whip was 1.31. And again, why does Kyle Hendricks overperform his FIP? Because he has a great defense behind him that is turning all that soft contact into outs. So as long as his pitches don't get hit over the wall, they're usually outs and he's pretty effective. I think he's got that trick in him for one more year. The fastball is back up to 88, which it gives me heart palpitations to talk about this when Kyle Hendricks is like, I'm back to 88. I'm like, oh my God. But it's still working and the Cubs are going to let it work as long as possible. I think that 2022 might have just been an injury blip. Now, I I don't want him as a guy that I have to start every single start, but Mm -hmm. for that mix and match, like where you're just picking him against certain situations, I I like Kyle Hendricks. Yeah, there's there's going to be matchups for him, you know, like if he's got the Pirates or Reds or Brewers and the wind's not blowing out, I would happily use him. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's an interesting one. And um, just for how late he's going, having a guy that isn't going to kill your whip in that range is it's tough to find. Um, most of the guys that go in that range are prospects or guys who are going to have a whip in the mid, like one threes. Um, okay. So let's talk about some of the, the less proven guys. Uh, this is kind of the range where we would have been talking about Justin Steele a year ago. Um, how would you rank these guys in terms of just long-term starting, starting options? You know, we, some of these guys have some potential if they move to the bullpen, but just as starting pitchers long-term, how would you rank? Jordan Wicks, Javier Assad, Hayden Wesneski, Ben Brown, and Caleb Killian. And um, we can maybe spend some time on, on whichever guys you like the most. Sure. So first of all, all of these guys have at least one flaw, and I think Caleb Killian has multiple flaws. So Killian <laughs> is at the bottom of this list for me by okay. a lot. Uh, so I, I'm not going to talk about him as much. Um, Jordan Wicks and Javier Assad are probably the next men up in the Cubs system right now. They're somewhere around like fifth, sixth starter territory. I'm hopeful that they will sign another starting pitcher. Jordan Montgomery really fits the mold of guys that Jed Hoyer likes to sign. So that wouldn't shock me at all. Um, But Wicks and Assad look like they might be duking it out for that last role or getting some spot starts as the sixth starter. Both of those dudes can throw innings. Both of those dudes can get out. Neither of those guys strikes out many guys. So they're guys that you would take for innings and wins, not really guys that you would take for strikeouts. Hopefully you've got strikeouts somewhere else. I think Hayden Wisniewski and Ben Brown are the two more talented options in this group. And they're the guys who, if they took another step, could become a number three or number two starter. I just don't think they're there yet. And so those are the two guys I'm most interested in, in a dynasty format or like an auto new format or something like that, because I think they have a ton of upside. And I think both of those guys are going to get chances to start this season with Wisniewski kind of looked like, he was tinkering around with his pitch mix a little bit this year and at times just lost command entirely. And then he'd walk a bunch of guys and he couldn't get out of it. And so curious to see what he looks like in spring training. I haven't seen a ton of Ben Brown yet, but the numbers I've seen look really interesting 
to me. And I kind of thought that they would call him up at the end of last season if he hadn't been dealing with some injury issues. So very intrigued to see him in spring training because I think he's got uh, SP3 upside. And I, I think Killian's going to be a middle reliever. So, yeah, I mean, I, so I think um, I've just had Ben Brown pegged as a reliever due to the command for a while, but he does have really loud stuff. And I mean, he's the type of guy that has a high ceiling as a reliever as well, if it doesn't work out starting. Um, but how long do you think they give Wes Neske to kind of develop as a starter? Do you think he's in danger of being moved to the bullpen full time sometime next season if things aren't working out? Like, how do you kind of see uh, that fork in the road? Like, how far off are we from it? It's a really interesting question and one that I don't feel like I can answer at the moment because I think a lot of this hinges on Craig Council and his decision-making process. And so at the moment, I see all of these guys as having a fairly similar shot to make the rotation and make some starts next season for the Cubs. But I think Jordan Wicks and Javier Saad have the inside track as the two dudes who have shown that they can throw six plus innings consistently and get you a W. It's worth remembering, Wesneski did that when he came up for the Cubs at the end of 2022. Yeah. He's kind of lost it in 2023. And so I see no reason why a new manager wouldn't give him a shot to reestablish that exact same thing with some fresh eyes. Um, really curious. I, I was interested to hear your take on Ben Brown because he's a guy I haven't seen as much of and I don't do as much prospect work as mm. you do. So that's that's super interesting to me. I'll keep that in mind as I'm doing my drafts. And then, you know, a prospect I'm sure we'll be talking about for a long time, hopefully, uh, Cade Horton, you know, he's someone I've already drafted in a draft and hold league for 2024. Um, you know, probably, you know, I would say Paul Skeens and Jackson Job are, are kind of the clear top two pitching prospects in the game, but I think Cade Horton has an argument to be number three, uh, behind those guys. Um, you know, and, He's maybe not that far off from those guys, really. Just just loud stuff. Uh, how much more time do you think that that he, or, or how quickly do you think that they might jump him into the big league rotation? Um, you know, obviously we saw pretty much any good starting pitching prospect who opened last season at Double A made it to the majors last season. That's just kind of the the speed that guys are getting promoted these days. Um, you know, once the team sort of thinks a pitcher is ready, they, they seem to give him a shot and get those bullets in the majors. Um, do you think they could be aggressive with Horton if he has a really good spring training? Or do you think they're just going to be very kind of conservative in term, terms of when they, they bring him up? God, this is such a good question. And I went back and forth on it like five different ways. Um, so I was really curious when they picked Cade Horton in the first place, just because he had so few innings uh, after his Tommy John surgery to reestablish himself, but the slider was so nasty. I just thought it was a really interesting draft pick by the Cubs in that instance. And if you look at his K percentage and walk percentage last season, you really see a spike in the walk percentage and a dip in the K percentage as he gets to double A. So I, I think they're going to give him a shot in spring training. He'll probably start in double A again. Maybe he makes it to triple A, but they're going to want to see if he can get that walk rate down. I think it was up around over 10% in double A last season. And so I, I doubt they're going to call him up until that is under control. That said, it is very exciting to have an arm in the Cubs system that like sits 97 to 99 with a plus slider. That is, oh, that it's been a hot minute since we've had anything like that as a prospect in the Cubs uh, pitching system. And so 
I think that if they are competitive next season, I would not be stunned if he got kind of like the AJ Smith Shaver, like take a spot, start, see what you can do type of situation. And even if he wound up in a relief role in 2024, I think he would wind up uh, looking like a guy who could start in 2025. And so I think there's some ways for him to, him to contribute in 2024, even if he doesn't start a ton of games for them. Well, this wouldn't necessarily be the greatest for my teams where I am kind of hoping to maybe get like 10 starts from him. But uh, actually, honestly, I'm, where I'm where I'm drafting him, I'm hoping to get like 15 starts from him. But uh, Craig Council has a lot of experience with guys like Woodruff, Burns, Ashby, guys with really loud stuff, breaking them in and sort of a setup role. And then the next season, it's just kind of off to the races as a starter. So, you know, I think Horton might be kind of more ready to help than that idea kind of gives him credit for. But you could see, like, you know, maybe they use him as just a, a weapon if they've got a ton of options in the rotation that he takes a spot in 2024 or 2025. Yeah, that's a great call out. I mean, I actually, um, in the rookie draft at um, first pitch, Arizona took Abner Uribe for the, exactly that reason, because it's like kind of the setup Brewers guy who could be like either a starting dude or one, one guy away from getting some saves in the Brewers bullpen. And I, I could not, I could totally see Craig Council using Kate Horton in that same mold. Um, I could also see Kate Horton just making a case that he's here and ready and off to the races. Yeah, I think he could do that in spring training and just kind of, you know, make enough noise that everyone's sort of expecting him up in like June or something like that. Um, okay, let's talk about the bullpen. Uh, Adbert Alzale seems to have risen to the top. Um, you know, shouldn't be overlooked that he made some strides uh, against uh, same-handed hitters last year. Uh, do you think he's kind of locked in as the closer? Do you see any competition there? Um, and who might be the top options behind him? I think he's locked in as the closer. I don't think that the Cubs are going to spend a ton of money on the back end of their bullpen. I know I've heard rumors where people are like, what if you got hater and made Alzali the setup guy or whatever? I mean, interesting fantasy. I think that the Cubs are going to spend their money in other ways. Uh, they tend to like to not bargain shop with relievers, but like one year deals for guys who might have high upside. And then you can either flip them if you're out of competition or you can re-sign them if you need to, or you can, you know, do any number of things like the Fulmer Boxberger contract is sort of where the Cubs like to live. And now that they have a guy who has established himself as being able to save games, they don't need to go out and get an elite closer. But there are some guys behind him who are super interesting. And I, I think that if you're in a draft and hold where you have to pick up some of these guys, I, I'm interested in a handful of them. Julian Merriweather has just six strikeout numbers. And he is the next guy up, if anything happens to Alvali in terms of getting saves. He looked really good this last season. And I'm intrigued with Merriweather. Uh, Mark Leiter Jr. too, although Leiter's numbers were real. They seemed like they were kind of um, bolstered by some weird like splits, like some reverse splits numbers that I'm not sure are real life. I think that they might've just been a short sample size issue in 2023. Uh, and then it, obviously Cade Horton, who we were just talking about, I think could come up and, and impact the back end of that bullpen as well. And the last guy I'll mention is kind of a sleeper here, but uh, like deep, deep sleeper, like may not get drafted in a draft and hold sleeper, but that's Brandon Hughes who did get some save opportunities in 2022. And he's a lefty uh, who they like at late in the late innings. And I, I imagine he'll still get some run there. 
I can't hear you. Um, I muted myself. I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, Daniel Palencia, I wanted to bring up. Um, just just given how hard he throws, um, you know, I, I, I agree with your assessment on Alzale, but do you see a chance that, you know, maybe with another strong season, Palencia kind of gets into that mix? Yeah, he absolutely could. And frankly, if we're if we're going that deep, I mean, they really liked Jose Quas down the stretch too. That's the arm that they got back for Nelson Velasquez. So mm-hmm. all of these guys could establish themselves in the sixth, seventh, eighth role and take a step forward if Alzali, who has dealt with a bunch of injury issues in his career, and he dealt with one at the end of the season. That's why he wasn't closing games in September, which incidentally was the difference between the Cubs making the playoffs or not, in my opinion. I mean, all of these guys could get a look there. Um, Palencia has a live arm. He's also had some control issues. Uh, frankly, another guy who came from the Cubs system that is no longer with the Cubs because he got picked up off waivers that I would have put in this conversation two weeks ago is Jeremiah Estrada, who I believe got picked up by the Padres. Um, and I was, I was sad to see him leave the Cubs system because he's got a, He's another guy with a live arm and some saves in there. Yeah. Palencia's, uh, Control is the reason why he's no longer a starting pitching prospect, and it might not even be good enough for him to be a, a high leverage guy. But uh, average 98 miles an hour with the fastball last year, 89 mile an hour slider, um, just uh, yeah, really electric stuff. Um, and yeah, I, you know, Estrada was getting drafted last year, and then he ended up on waivers um, a year later. Uh, life of a big league reliever, but um, that's. Probably going to do it for us with the Cubs talk. Any Anyone else you want to bring up before we get to uh, the ADP question I have for you? No, that was super thorough. And thanks for having me on to talk about the Cubs. I love it. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> that was very thorough. I, I appreciate it. Um, and so for, for this offseason's end of podcast gimmick, uh, I'm going to do a thing where I have each guest. Uh, we're going to go position by position and that week's guest has to give me a player at the position who is going outside of the top 300 in NFBC drafts that they think is uh, a really good value. And we're going to start it off with catchers. So we're looking at catchers who are going outside the top 300 in NFBC drafts on average. And uh, we're each going to give a catcher that jumps out to us as a good value. And we'll keep this gimmick up uh, throughout the rest of the offseason. And since you're the guest, Sarah, you will go first and tell me which catcher with an ADP outside the top 300 you think is a strong value uh, for 2024. Yeah, so I took a look at all these guys. And and you did give me the option of saying a Cub, but I'm not going to say a Cub because I think that the Jan Gomes-Miguel Amaya playing time split is too much of a question mark for me. Um, It's Freddie Fermin. And it's because I think Salvador Perez's days behind the plate are numbered. We saw him playing less games at catcher as the season went on. He'd play some games at first. He'd do some DHing. I think that Vermeen could take over that job um, pretty quickly. But the thing that I really like here, I am a sucker for any catcher that has a WRC plus over 100. And Vermeen is one of three guys on this list of dudes going after 300 that you gave me. And his WRC plus is 108. And that's a yes, please for me, for a guy who's going this late in drafts, who I think has a shot at taking over that job. I don't think he's going to lose playing time to MJ Melendez. I think that he'll probably establish himself as the catcher for the Royals. And I'm curious, I I would definitely take a shot at Freddie Fermin and a draft and hold in this situation. That's a, it's a good call. Um, 
I thought you were I thought you were going to be a homer and go with go with a, a cub, but uh, I, I like that you went uh, with uh, Fermin of the Kansas City Royals. Um, I mentioned earlier, I, I you know Miguel Amaya is is my most rostered of all these catchers, um, but we already kind of touched on him. And I want to bring up, you know, I do think Austin, Austin Wells is the top guy uh, with an ADP outside the top 300. I think he's a, a fine option um, at, at pick 346, you know, lefty power in Yankee Stadium, pretty solid place to start. Uh, but I'm actually going to take, just in terms of a good value, I think Ivan Herrera with the Cardinals is a really nice value as a super, super cheap option. Um, certainly not a guy that I think you would want to go into the season with as your, your number two catcher, but I think he'd be a a very fine number three option. Uh, I just think the Cardinals, uh, you know, for whatever reason they signed, uh, Wilson Contreras without really liking his catcher defense, it seems. And I think some of the pitchers prefer to have someone else behind the plate. So I think you could see uh, Contreras DH a decent amount this year, and they could get Herrera back there, uh, maybe more than people are anticipating. Um, you know, he's someone who's you know always been a, a decent like kind of contact OBP type of catcher, but uh, really started getting the power uh, last year at AAA more than he had in past years. Uh, hit. Uh, 10 homers in 83 games, but 203 ISO at AAA for Herrera last year, and he actually stole 11 bases in 83 games. Um, had a 451 OBP at AAA last year as a 23-year-old catcher. So, you know, he's he's dirt cheap, and I think there's a chance he could push for, you know, like 300 plate appearances, something like that. Uh, maybe get, you know, 8 to 12 homers, 5 to 8 steals, something like that. Uh, so not bad for a third catcher with an ADP of 609. I love that call out. Uh, and interestingly, I mentioned the rookie league from first pitch Arizona. Yvonne Herrera is my catcher there for the exact same reason you just described. I Wilson Contreras will always be my favorite. Uh, he's behind me at the moment. My favorite Wilson Contreras bobblehead on my little like shelf back here. But frankly, I agree with everything you said about the Cardinals and what they think about his catching ability and what they think about Yvonne Herrera. And I, I thought he looked good when he played in the majors this season. I think he'll get more run next season. And that's why he's my catcher for that rookie league. Awesome. Well, uh, Sarah, this has been great. Um, I kept you quite a while. I really appreciate you hanging around. Um, Anything you want to promote before I let you go? Uh, you know, I don't have anything super fancy coming up this off season, but if you are not already subscribed to my Cubs podcast, cup of cubby blue, Uh, It's on the Bleacher Bunch Network. Definitely check that out. Just search for Bleacher Bunch Network wherever you get your podcasts. And I have a fantasy baseball show as well. We'll have some off-season content coming to you, draft uh, reviews, talking to fantasy friends. I will likely hit up James to come on the show at some point uh, this season as well. And so it's just a show where I talk process, really, looking at the way people make decisions Uh, during draft season throughout the year and as the season winds down and learn a lot talking to y'all about fantasy baseball. So definitely check that out too. That's called What the Fab. It's on the Fans First Sports Network. Awesome. Always love talking Cubs with Sarah Sanchez and I'd be happy to return that favor and and hop on your podcast. Um, But that's going to do it for us today. Um, Come talk with me on the the Road to Our Discord channel if you want. Uh, Otherwise, I'll be back with another episode next week. 
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.